All right, welcome everybody. It is wonderful to have you with us. Welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study. You should have on your seats a two-sided, on the table in front of you, sorry, a two-sided handout. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen at home, at the various homes and watch parties that are springing up all over the Metroplex, um, it is great to have you, well, not. it's not great to have you not with us. I think you know what I mean. It's wonderful that you're there, um, and I hope you enjoy this uh, as much as I hope we all do here. Um, my uh, good friend and your tech gurus, Aaron Capone and Uriah Gill, are tapping away in the far corner. So if you have any questions, you want to zoom them in, then they can pick them up and throw them our way, um, which will be helped immensely if you can check your email inboxes in the usual way, and you'll find the handout there. And I think that might be helpful. It is entitled, The Forgotten Virtue of Shrewdness. Because shrewdness, it seems to me, is a forgotten virtue, and it's about time we rediscovered it. And I think, by God's grace, uh, Ruth chapter 4 may help us to do so. So I'm going to read Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And then I'm going to talk about uh, this topic and try and show you how I think it's connected to the broader issue that we're trying to deal with in this series, which is uh, how our relationships work, and particularly how relationships between men and women work, conscious that uh, many of you are married, and uh, many of those of you who aren't married now may be in the future. And even if you're not, it doesn't do us any harm to understand one another and to understand ourselves a little bit better. And so for all those reasons... I think um, this book, the book of Ruth, is particularly good for that because, as I've said before, it's full of complex relational interactions between different people. And today, it's different level of complexity and subtlety. And uh, I'm not going to say any more about it. I'm going to read the, I'll pray, then I'll read the text, then I've got a story to tell you, and we'll just jump straight in. So let's pray first, shall we? Merciful Father, how grateful we are to you for so working in us by your grace that you've united us with Christ and united us with one another in this church family. We're thankful for one another. And above all else, in this series of Bible studies, we want to honor Christ by learning how better to understand one another and to relate to one another. We pray particularly, therefore, for the the married couples, both present and future, uh, among us. And also for all of us as individuals, asking that we come to understand ourselves and one another better and so function more fruitfully and faithfully as members of Christ's body. So open our eyes this evening to see what it is that Boaz is doing so wisely and shrewdly here in Ruth chapter 4 teaches many good and wonderful things by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read the text, Ruth 4, 1 to 10. Just a recap, you, you remember what happened last time. Uh, end of chapter 3, uh, Ruth and Boaz have some kind of tacit commitment to one another, at least a desire they both share, to marry, um, which initiative was prompted by a transformed Naomi at the start of chapter 3. We'll see further evidence of her transformation later in chapter 4. But there remains a problem that 
Boaz has highlighted, that there is another kinsman, redeemer, another relative who's closer to Naomi and therefore to Ruth than he is. And as we'll see, that presents some problems for any marriage prospects they might have. So we'll just jump straight in. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Slightly strange way of shaking hands, you might think. There's actually more to it than that, but we'll come to it later, Lord willing. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Mahlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. All right. So I want to talk about shrewdness, and I want to introduce this subject by telling you a story which will, uh, my wife will roll her eyes as I tell this story. I might have mentioned this to one or two of you before. Um, how we prepared for a homeschool inspection. Uh, in England, where we raised our kids until we moved over here two and a half, more than two and a half years ago now, uh, homeschooling is uh, more or less the only option for many Christians, including ourselves, who want to give their kids a Christian education. And it is technically uh, unregulated. The, the law basically says that you must give your children an education uh, of at least two hours a day or something. Uh, and it doesn't place any restrictions on how you do it. You can send them to school if you want, or you can do it otherwise. That's the phrase in the legislation. And so there's this organization called Education Otherwise, which is like a homeschool support network. Anyway. So we, realising that we wanted to give our kids a Christian education, that's the option we took. We couldn't afford a Christian school, and there wasn't really one nearby anyway. So, Now, the inspection issue 
had been raised a number of times by politicians who would say things like, there could be tens of thousands of home educators in Britain. Nobody knows what they're doing. We must find out. We must be given mandatory rights of inspection. And in fact, the way the legislation works is that local authorities do have the right to inspect if you've withdrawn your kid from a school. So if you pull your kid out of school, and that's right, isn't it? You're looking at me and making sure I'm getting the, the documents right. Uh, then the local authority, the educational authority, has the responsibility in law to ensure the child is still being educated, albeit otherwise. So they can do an inspection. And we had friends to whom that happened. And the education authorities vary. Some just come around, it's a rubber stamping exercise. But we'd heard horror stories of um, inspectors who were um, not quite physically forcing their way into homes, but coming unannounced and demanding to come in. We'd heard of very hostile inspections from local authorities. We'd heard of one local authority inspector quite near us who had vowed to stamp out home education from the borough. Um, And we knew also that sometimes they would give the impression that they had a legal right to enter and would threaten to call the police if you didn't let them in. So it's like one of these slightly nerve-wracking experiences. Are we going to get inspected and what's the inspector going to be like? And, you know, what would we do? Would we refuse to let them in? Well, if you do that, then the police will be at the door. Even if you haven't committed an offence, you just want attention to yourself. All this was exacerbated by some proposed legislation that nearly got through Parliament. At one point, there was a proposal to allow inspectors to interview children as young as five without their parents being present. I remember a friend of mine saying he would go to prison before he allowed that. And I found myself thinking, yay and amen, brother. But the the fact remained that we we wanted to make sure that we were not unprepared for an inspection if it might come. Because what you don't want to do is draw attention to yourself, right? It's like... I don't want to have a big fight over this. We just want to raise our kids. I don't insist that all your kids out there in the world get a Christian education. You do whatever crazy thing you want to do. But as for me and my house, we all serve the Lord, and we'd like just the freedom to do so. So I sort of, over the years, formulated this plan, which was ably assisted by my wonderful wife, Nicole, who keeps records of everything. What we basically did was that Nicole kept absolutely every single piece of work our children had ever done, all the curricula, all the books, all the homework, all the drooled all over smudgy sketches, all the terrible paintings. All, we didn't keep kind of papier-mâché models of things, but we didn't make many of those. Um, we didn't keep biology experiments because they'd probably smell. But basically all of the paperwork, and I don't know how many boxes, do we have like 10, 12 boxes? I mean, it was like we probably had, I don't know, 15 to 20 cubic feet of paperwork by the time we left England. And most of it we just threw away. We, we brought like a couple of boxes with us for old time's sake, didn't we? And my plan was that if we had the local authority inspector from hell who insisted that either we let him or her in or they're going to call the police, notwithstanding the fact they have no statutory right to do so, we would say, or I would say something like this, well, completely straight face, completely deadpan, See if I can pull that off. You're welcome. You will, of course, want to arrive at the start of the school day. My children begin their homework at 6 a.m. Um, we have Greek 
at 7, piano practice after that, then breakfast. Lessons begin at 9, and you're welcome to stay through to the end of the day, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, whereupon the children will go to their other activities and clubs and sports and music and so on and so forth. And in the meantime, while you're perhaps taking a break from looking at the lessons that we're teaching, you may want to look at some of our previous work. And my plan was to put every single piece of paper we'd ever accumulated just in a massive pile all on the dining room table. We had quite a large dining room table, sort of 12 feet long. I was confident I could cover it to about eight inches in depth in paper. Because my aim was to demonstrate that we had done the job we needed to do. I didn't want them to come in and sort of be looking around, and and we have to kind of scratch together four or five bits of homework as examples just to try and persuade them that our kids can read, write, and do sums. We wanted to drown them in paperwork. If you want to be the administrator, then here's something to administrate. In other words, we wanted to give them no excuse for coming to the conclusion, any other conclusion, than that these kids have had a fairly comprehensive education. And I regarded that at the time as this idea over the years sort of formulated in my mind as a, an example of what I want to call this evening the forgotten virtue of shrewdness. <coughs> shrewdness is the capacity to deal with relationships in which it's possible that somebody else might want to do you or those you love harm. If you think about what we've been discussing so far, uh, we've been thinking about all kinds of different ways in which men and women uh, and women and women and men and men might relate to each other. Think back to the first part of chapter one. You've got... um, Naomi, who perhaps isn't understood very well by her husband, and then you see the, the, the pain that she experiences as the relationship is torn apart by death. And then later in chapter 1, you see the different relationships between Orpah and Naomi and Ruth and Naomi. And you start to see something special about the relationship that Ruth and Naomi have. Chapter 2, you see Ruth's godly femininity and Boaz's godly masculinity and the effect they have on each other and the effect that they have Uh, the Boaz has had on the men who work for him. In chapter 3, you start to see them interact more directly. You also see Naomi taking the initiative again. You're seeing all these relationships between people who most of the time, with the possible exception of Naomi at one or two moments in chapter 1, most of the time are well-intentioned. They're good people, more or less, trying to do the right thing, trying to do good things, and you're seeing them rub off each other. But what happens if you or the people for whom you're responsible to care and protect, what happens if there's a possibility that you or they might run into somebody who doesn't wish them good, who wants to stamp out home education from the borough, and with it, your chance of giving your children a Christian education? How, what do you do? Um, and the answer, among other things, according to the Bible, is shrewdness. And I'm afraid that we're not very good at it. Um, We sometimes adopt a kind of worldly shrewdness, which is not good. Um, But there is a biblical virtuous shrewdness. It's kind of like the opposite of naivety, if you know what I mean by that, naivete. Naivete is 
um, kind of complacency or n complacency in the face of the possibility of evil and harm. Uh, not being prepared for things that might go sideways. Whereas shrewdness is the proactive, godly virtue that prepares for that possibility without casting negative aspersions on other people, but just being ready for the worst if the worst should happen. In fact, it's a perfect example of the kind of thing that I've talked about a number of times, and certainly in, in the introduction to the first of these sessions, where I said that a lot of the way we think about relationships, we reduce to abstractions. Yeah, like um, how should husbands and wives relate? Well, wife should submit to her husband, husband should love his wife. Well, that's true, that's what the Bible says. But the danger is, of course, we reduce the complexity and texture and nuance of a, of a great marriage to love, submit. And that's too clumsy. That's not sufficiently detailed and textured. It doesn't actually show you what to do. What we really need is to plunder the other resources of Scripture to figure out what love and submission means. And it turns out there's depth to all of those things. And Well, same with shrewdness. Shrewdness as such is an abstraction. And what we really need to do is to see it fleshed out. And I can think of few more uh, helpful and appropriate passages for seeing shrewdness lived out than Ruth chapter 4. In Ruth chapter 4, what happens is that Boaz um, comes face to face with a, a problem. And we're going to go through it in detail in a, in a minute, but I just want to sketch the problem for you in a second, uh, just for a second. Um, he, he wants to uh, marry Ruth. In order to do so, he's going to have to take advantage of some... Uh, Old Testament scriptural legislation which permits and indeed requires a close relative to make financial provision through the purchase of land and also family permission through marriage and the provision of children for, um, a, among other things, a widow who's dispossessed. And that, So there are laws that require that. The problem is it requires the closest relative to do that and there's another guy who's a closer relative who has, so, so to speak, first, first refusal. And this is Bethlehem in the days of the judges. So what are the chances? Even if that guy were a godly man, it's not the guy that Boaz is, and it's not the guy that Ruth has become a, attracted to and wants to marry, but the chances are, of course, that in the days of the judges in the town of Bethlehem, uh, you're not going to stumble across a godly man by accident. And so actually... Ruth and Naomi's future hangs in the balance. Boaz has got to find a way of persuading this guy to relinquish his claim on marriage and on land, both of which potentially, well, certainly the land could have been very valuable for reasons that we'll explore. And if he just kind of blundered in there like an ignoramus and just said, hey, I want you to lay down this prerogative, he might not have succeeded and Ruth and Naomi's future might have been imperiled. Certainly he wouldn't have been able to marry um, Ruth. So we're going to come to that and see the shrewdness that he displays in getting there. But before we do it, I want to just talk about shrewdness more broadly. Look at your handouts with me. Because I, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, well, a few minutes ago now, there is such a thing as ungodly shrewdness. And I've, I've um, included a few texts here to highlight what I have to do with that, what I, have to, what I mean by that. 
So under that heading, introducing shrewdness, here are some biblical texts about shrewdness. The Greek word is phronimos. There's a, there's a Greek lesson for free. You're welcome. Um, uh, it occurs many times in the Greek New Testament and in the Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament, and that's labeled LXX. That's a technical term for it. Don't worry about that. I wanted you to see where the word appears because it's translated in different ways. Sometimes, like the first time it occurs in Genesis 3 verse 1, it's translated in a negative way. Look at Genesis 3, 1. You've got the text in front of you. Now, the serpent was more phronimos than any of the other wild animals, any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He's more crafty. Notice that's construing this character trait in a negative way. And you think about what the serpent does. He's crafty. He's devious. He's exploiting the human capacity for sin in order to cause harm. Remember that this is how he's introduced, and what he goes on to do is to isolate and single out the woman, Eve, and seek to persuade her to disobey the words she's received from her husband and that he's received from the Lord. And so you know the story of Genesis 3, catastrophe. It begins with this craftiness, this shrewdness. It's the exploiting the vulnerable, exploiting the human capacity for sin in order to cause harm. But there is a flip side to shrewdness, which is protecting the vulnerable, protecting those you love from other people's capacity to cause harm. And it's in that spirit that the word is used positively many, many times in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Proverbs, where it's often translated prudent or prudence. And here's some examples. So Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is phronimos, prudent, shrewd. In other words, you see that if I open my mouth, my mouth now, I might get myself into trouble. If I open my mouth now, I, I might, yeah. This would be a moment where if I said something, I could start an argument, I could start a quarrel, I could the person I'm speaking to is capable of sustaining an ungodly argument with me. I've just heard them say something provocative. If I fire back, words are many, transgression won't be far behind. So I'm going to restrain my lips. That's shrewd. What I'm actually doing is protecting this, myself maybe, or somebody else, from sin. You can think of many contexts in which that kind of thing happens. Sometimes family contexts. You know, the, um, the Thanksgiving dinner where you see all those cousins you haven't seen since you had an argument at Thanksgiving last year. That, that, that at least is the caricature. And it's a caricature because it's not so far from the truth in, in too many situations. Another example. The vexation of a fool is known at once, Proverbs twelve sixteen, But the prudent, the phronimos, the shrewd, ignores an insult. This is fascinating. It happened to me just the other day. Genuine. This is a true story. I told Nicole about this. I was... I was at the gym, new resolution, you know, 40-something years old, and I need to get, try and stave off the ravages of aging and time. So anyway, got new gym membership. And so I, I, I walked over to this, the weights bench where there's, there's um, you know what a Smith machine is? It's like a squat rack for people like me who aren't very strong and therefore need the, the bar to be held in place by these rails so it goes up and down in a straight line and I can't drop it so easily. So I go over to there's this bench there and there's this squat rack there, and I, I'm about to start, I'm 
you know, putting the weights on that I want and taking the weights off that are already there because it's far too many for me. Um, and this, this, is, this is mobile phone on the floor. I thought, oh, what shall I do with the mobile phone? So I just I thought, well, I'll just leave it there because whoever wants it will come back for it. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, I mean, I could have stolen it, I suppose. Well, I decided not to. Um, Anyway, so a couple of minutes later, I've literally I just put the weights on. I'm just about to you know, lift my seven pounds you know, deadlift, whatever it is. And this guy comes over and he says, I was just going to the restroom. He didn't say it in that accent. He said it in American accent. I was just going to the restroom. And I was like, uh, sorry? He said, I was just going to the restroom. And it suddenly dawned on me that he'd, that was his phone that I'd not stolen. And he'd been gone like five minutes or something. And he's just come back and I was just going to the restroom. I said, I'm sorry, did you you want to come here? Now they're like four Smith machines. Nobody else is using any of them, right? Did did you want to come back? Yes. And the thought just flashed through my head. It's like, you know, this is how fights start in gyms, isn't it? It's like, I could be on YouTube. I could be famous. Because everyone's in there like, taking selfies of themselves in those massive mirrors, and they'd be all like, oh, look, there's the pastor fighting with the guy who wants to. <laughs> Because the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Apart from the fact he's like 300 pounds, built like Buzz Lightyear. I don't want to start a fight with him anyway. But you see the point? That is, that is how... And so I said, you know, sir, you're welcome. And I smiled, and I walked 10 feet away, to the Jason Smith machine. It was just the most ludicrous scene I've ever participated in. But I, I, I thank God for that because there was that little bit in me that wanted to say, listen, brother, sorry, you, I, your phone's there. You might want to take that and find another machine someplace else before somebody less nice than me comes along and just steals it like I could have done while you were at the restroom for five minutes, leaving your weights all over the place. But it wouldn't have been very wise, would it? I might have got beaten up. It wouldn't have been very godly. Because, and, and I thank God that, in, that there was that, just that moment where the thought flashed through my head, and maybe the Lord made sure that he sent me a temptation in the form of somebody who weighs twice as much as me, so it wasn't so tempting. Again, see so what we're doing, it's, it's how do you deal with people in the real world where there is sinful around, whether evil I mean I don't want to exaggerate but it's not really very godly is it and what's the best way to deal with that situation uh, another example Proverbs 12.23 a prudent man conceals knowledge but the heart of fools proclaims folly you know it would have been a mistake for me to have told you that story about our homeschooling inspection plans 15 years ago at the start of our homeschooling journey feeling very happy about myself. Having just blown my cover to the local authority inspectors if they should happen, etc. You know? Sometimes there are things that you could say, which are true, but which if if you say them, you're just likely to get yourself or somebody else, particularly somebody else, into a tangle. Um, Which is like um, Proverbs 22.3, come to it in a second, but... um, uh, Proverbs fourteen fifteen: The simple believes everything, but the prudent 
gives thought to his steps. You see the contrast between the simple in the book of Proverbs. Simple is a moral category. It's like the fool, somebody who doesn't know how to navigate the world wisely and properly. The prudent, the shrewd, gives thought to his steps. Proverbs 22, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. You see the, the theme emerging. And again and again in the book of Proverbs, the word prudent is used to describe somebody who knows how to navigate a sinful world well and to protect and provide for those whom he knows and loves. In the New Testament, one of Jesus' most puzzling parables, the parable of the, the shrewd manager, um, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And if you remember the story, it's about uh, a manager who, when he learns he's going to be fired, goes around reducing the debts of all the people who owe his master money. A, a, a manager, sorry, who goes around doing that for those who owe his master money. And you, it's really puzzling because you're trying to work out how Jesus can commend um, him for doing that. And I don't think the application of it is very simple. I don't, don't think it, it is a complex parable, but it's very interesting that this manager is commended because he deals shrewdly with a situation in which, if he's not smart, harm might come to him. There's more to it than that, I think. But uh, Most uh, helpfully, I think, Matthew 10, 16 Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as phronimos, wise, as serpents, and innocent as doves. Be shrewd as serpents. Really? Shrewd as serpents? Like Genesis 3? Serpents? Yes. And as innocent as doves. Right? We need to be as smart at handling the tangled complexity of sin as the serpent that's why it's serpents here. Obviously, it's an allusion to Genesis 3, the first occurrence of the term in the Bible. But while being innocent, we, we need to be able to outwit the devil in Christ. Christ outwitted the devil. Think about Christ's self-giving on the cross. What he was doing was he was giving to the devil the impression that he, the devil, had won. At precisely the moment when Jesus himself was victorious, the cross is the perfect example of shrewdness. It is to allow the evil powers of this world to seemingly have their way and actually have their way. Like the leaders of the Jews and Pontius Pilate wanted to see Jesus dead and they succeeded. They actually got what they wanted. And it's just that Jesus is shrewder. Shrewdness is part of what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus because it's what Jesus was doing when he took up his cross. And so we're to follow him in that same way. Now, that's shrewdness sort of sketched broadly. What I want to do is to, to just zoom in with the help of Paul Miller, that book that I've recommended to you a, full time, a few times. Start zooming towards Ruth, and then we're going to look in detail at Ruth 4 and the rest of the time we've got together, and I'll show you some of the things that Boaz does. Um, but Paul Miller highlights a few things. So... And these just help us to look at this issue from different angles. Then we'll pause, see if you've got any questions, and jump into Ruth 4. So, prudence for the Hebrews means, how do I avoid danger in a world of evil? You see that theme? It's, it's not naivety. It's recognizing that the world 
bad things happen in the world. There are people who will do evil, who will harm you or those whom you love. How do you avoid harm coming to them? Prudence takes total depravity seriously. It's such an irony that reformed people who rightly affirm the doctrine of total depravity, that we're all by nature corrupted in every aspect of our lives and our being, haven't got such a well-developed doctrine of shrewdness, which is the practical wisdom necessary to deal with it. Prudence reduces the downside risk in an evil world. Looking at my our resident economist here, you know, that the, the small chance of something terrible happening, the downside risk, well, shrewdness is, it's kind of like inbuilt life insurance, but, but bolted onto all of our actions and our words. And then looking at the book of Ruth more um, specifically, prudence shapes how Boaz loves Ruth. And here are some examples that give you a sense of Boaz's shrewdness doesn't begin in chapter 4. It climaxes in chapter 4. But you see, he understands about the evil of the world. And from beginning to end in this book, he's acted in a way that is not naive. It's alert to to the evil that could harm his soon-to-be bride. So because men have a problem with sexual lust, he cautions his male workers not to touch her. Chapter 2, verse 9. Do you remember? Um, he says to Ruth, in, Ruth herself, um, uh, I've charged the young men not to touch you. So stay in this field. Don't go someplace else. Somewhere else you might get harmed. Now, how tempting it would be just to, you know, to overlook that. You know, these, are, these are Christians. We don't have to worry about that. These are believers. You know, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Right? They, all, they all respond with the kind of liturgically correct greeting for a committed Yahwist, worshipper of Yahweh under the Old Covenant. They're all um, in the front row of church every Sunday morning. Oh, we don't need a child and vulnerable adult protection policy for these guys. It's fine. They're Christians. No, you do. Um, Because men have a problem with sexual temptation, well, no, they're Christians. Couldn't happen to our kids. You know, accountability software on your phones, that's for all those... Nasty boys at public schools. We don't... No. Because we understand the reality of evil in the world and in our own hearts, we take it seriously. You see, shrewdness takes total depravity seriously. Continuing the quote. Because people have a problem with jealousy, he cautions his workers not to belittle her. That's a reference to the scene in chapter 2, um, verse 15, where, you know, Boaz has got a bunch of uh, male and female staff. My wife, Nicole, pointed out that probably the female, the, the other ladies in the field are probably not gleaners. They're probably his servants and they're working for him. But here comes this Johnny-come-lately Moabite girl, and he's having lunch with her. What's going on? And there's a genuine possibility that they start to resent her and try and look for opportunities to belittle her or to criticize her. You know, you're gathering in the wrong place. And he's like, look, even if she gathers in the wrong place, if she gathers in the sheaves that you guys have already harvested, just chill out. In fact, go and get some stuff from the sheaves and throw it over the floor so she can pick it up. Because she doesn't know what she's doing. You see, he's trying to protect her from other people's sinful temptations. Again, because people have a tendency to judge, he gives a 
a sack of grain as cover. This is in chapter three. Remember, she's gone down to the threshing floor. Oh, my word. Um, in the middle of the night, at her mother's advice. Oh, my. Anyway, thanks, Naomi. Um, and nothing happened. Remember, we looked at this last week, that nothing happened. But the whole narrative is designed to show what it would have looked like to a certain kind of ungodly onlooker. And Boaz knows. Like, if, if, it's, if everyone sees a girl coming back from the threshing floor at, in, the, uh, you know, in the early morning, it's, um, it just doesn't look right. And, and her honor is at stake. So go back before it gets light and have some grain so if anybody does see you, it, well, okay. You just, you've got plausible deniability that in relation to anything else happening. The right caution frees us to love with abandon. That's picking up some things which um, uh, we'll look at later on. Um, Biblical prudence is caution in the midst of committed love. That's a nice way of putting it, I think. It's Boaz is really committed to Ruth, and we're going to see that in a second. But uh, shrewdness, biblical prudence, is, okay, how do you navigate the reality of the world when you really love somebody and you want to protect them, you want to protect them from other people, you want to protect them from yourself, you want to protect them from your own worst temptations, you want to protect yourself from your own worst temptations. How are you shrewdly going to handle evil? And we'll see what, Ruth, uh, what Boaz does here in a second. Let me pause, though. Any um, thoughts or questions at this stage? You need to fiddle with something? Okay. Uriah is going to do something technical. Please ignore him. He's... All right. Pay, pay no attention to the moment. Yeah, okay. All right. Any, any, comment, any thoughts so far? Or are you okay? Yeah, Joel. That's very helpful, yeah. It is both knowledge of what could go wrong. You know, it's taking total depravity seriously. You know, there, there are guys who go to the gym and just want to beat somebody up. And then it's, okay, w- so what do we do? Yeah. And it's the what do we do that we'll see in Boaz as well. And, and the, the value in looking at a narrative like this is it's an example of the kind of textured, real-life concrete example of shrewdness rather than just trying to generate abstractions seeing it in action I think is helpful so any other thoughts or should we just jump straight in okay so um, uh, before we jump in oh, here's me saying we jump straight into Ruth 4 um, we need to remind ourselves of some of the Old Testament background now some of you know this so, so don't, don't look at those texts just yet there are two um, sets of Old Testament laws that are in the background uh, one I've called the redemption of land. The other I've called leverite marriage. Leverite marriage. Um, who wants to have a go at um, describing either of these? Come on, don't let me do all the talking. What's the redemption of land thing? Anybody know? 
or if you all looked it up already. You want to summarize it for us? You're all being very polite. Go on, Evelyn will do it. Evelyn. No, you had your hand up. Mr. Barnes had his hand up as well. No, no, she didn't. She's pointing to you, actually. That's what her hand was doing. She was doing this. Jonathan Barnes is the murder case. Le uh, give us redemption of land, John. Uh, in summary, uh, when one of your kin uh, led, uh, pulls out a loan out of his land, uh, maybe he's, he's in debt, he fell into debt, and he right. uh, thus gives his land to another for a certain sum of money. Uh, within the seven years, if I recollect, if a kin, if a kin can in fact redeem that property for him, for a certain amount of money, depending on how far it's from the seventh year. Of right, right. You're, 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 you're getting super sophisticated because you're yeah. thinking about the Sabbath year as well. And um, it's, it's Jubilee as well, 50 years ago. So basically, I mean, just to, uh, we'll, we'll just read the text. It's not too long. Um, Leviticus 25, 23 um, begins with this statement. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. The land is mine. Now, it's re really important. The land belongs to the Lord the land of Israel, that is, under the Old Covenant. And the reason for that is it's the locus of divine blessing. And so every tribe and every family has got to have their portion and keep their portion. Remember when we did Joshua? It was the, all the daughters of Zelophehad. All that stuff about how you mustn't let the inheritance pass out of the clan because every family, every clan needs to keep its footing in the ground, the land that belongs to the Lord, where the Lord's blessing is. Right. For your strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. So what's that? Verse 25, here's the money section. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, maybe his harvest fails, maybe he has some unforeseen expenses, damage to a building, has to pay for it, got no money, sell part of the land. <gasps> but you're selling part of your stake in the community of the people of God. Then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Now, the, the legislation goes on. Um, we, can, uh, we can look at that, but there's no need to look at it for our purposes. Basically, what, what ought to happen is if you need to sell something, you sell it to your, your nearest neighbor. But in circumstances where you've already had to sell it, like is in the case with, in Ruth chapter 4, Elimelech has already sold it to somebody. What actually ought to happen is that the, the kinsman redeemer ought to buy it back for them. So in effect, it does get sold, albeit through this third party, to somebody in the, in the family. So that one way or another, the land remains within the family. Because the land is the place where the blessing of the Lord is found. So your nearest relative would have a responsibility to bail you out if you got into trouble, had to sell part of your property. They'd have to buy that from whoever had taken possession of it so that it could remain within the family. That's redemption of land. Next one, Deuteronomy 25. Leverite marriage. Just flip over to that. You know the story here, uh, but I'm just going to read it for you. Is it actually important to get the details right here? Otherwise, you end up in a tangle thinking that you end up with people with multiple wives, which wouldn't have happened. Um, verse 5, Deuteronomy 25, 5. If brothers dwell together, which means that they're living in the same home, so they're not yet married. Thank you. Um, and one of them dies and, sorry, the, the, the other brother is not yet married. One of them dies and has no son. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. The husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her. Let the reader understand. 
The first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And then there's a bunch of explanation, like if he refuses to do that, well, you don't want to forcibly compel him to, because what would actually happen then is that the woman herself will be placed in an extremely vulnerable situation with him. Imagine being married to a man who really didn't want to be married to you. When he has a responsibility to provide children for you, that would be a deeply unpleasant, potentially dangerous situation to be in. So what should happen is that he should be publicly humiliated so everybody knows that he's failed to fulfill that responsibility. So if the man doesn't wish to take his brother's wife, verse 7, the brother's wife goes to the elders in the gate and says, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He won't do what he's supposed to do. Um, And then the elders confront him. Then verse 9, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot. And I know, it's crazy, right? And spit in his face and say, so shall it be done to the man who doesn't build up his brother's house. Now, that, that, I mentioned that little detail about the sandal and the humiliation because it comes up in Ruth 4 in a slightly different way. But the bottom line is this. The Leverett marriage legislation is designed to provide for the continuance of the family name. So if a man died, if a, a man died leaving his wife without, an heir, without children... Somebody should provide a son for her who is legally the son of her first now deceased husband. So the name of that clan persists, that family persists through Israel. So it's all about retaining the inheritance of land, redemption of land, of offspring and family lineage, leverent marriage, so that everybody receives and keeps within their family the blessing the Lord has given them. Can you see that? And all that legislation is in the background for Ruth, chapter 4. Yeah, Mrs. Clackhorn. Um, is there an age limit on that for the wife? Was there an age limit for the wife? Yeah. Uh, you're thinking of, because what happens here is Ruth, not Naomi. Yeah, and that, like, once she's past a certain age, then it doesn't, like, if they never have kids and he dies. Right, yeah. So it... You can imagine there being a situation where they never have kids, he dies, and she's now past childbearing age. That's what happens. Well, it's not quite. It's almost what happens here. We'll come to that in a second, because it's really intriguing how Boaz handles this uh, situation. What I thought you were going to say is, is there a lower age limit for the levir, the, the one who should marry? And yes, there is. I mean, if you're not yet a man, you're a boy, like with um, Judah's son, uh, Sheila, Sheila, third son of Judah, he was not. He was still a kid when Ur and Onan died because they refused to do this in Genesis 38. So yeah, there was that practical lower limit as well. Yeah, Aaron. Oh. We'll look at that next week, yeah, because it, it's um, it is tangential for this, but it's not for next week. That's exactly right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Douglas. Yes, sir. What would have happened would the, if, if the first child uh, born would have been a uh, girl? Would he have been? Would she have been? Uh, how would that? Have been? Yeah, I'm not sure what would happen if the firstborn had been a girl. My assumption is that what's supposed what's supposed to happen in an ideal world 
is that the closest unmarried male relative should marry the woman and provide everything that she needed. Not just like a son. Here, you've got a son now. See ya. That's how it ought to be once you consider how um, ties of relationship and emotional intimacy are supposed to go with physical intimacy in marriage. Um, And what's fascinating about Ruth 4 is that's what Boaz insists on. He insists on the whole package of, and it, so he's, we'll come to this in a sec, but he's, he's grasping the spirit of the law. Just on a side note, and we'll, you'll see this as we're working through, there's quite a lot of laws, quote-unquote, in the Old Testament, right? There are very, very few occasions when you actually see those laws being obeyed in detail. It's very rare, if you think about it. There's all the instructions about um, what to do in different circumstances in the case laws, Exodus 21 to 23, for example. But you very rarely, if ever, see a narrative in which one of them is obeyed. There was a man who stole a sheep, and when he was apprehended, he was required to give forth. No, it just doesn't happen. Ruth chapter 4 is an exception. You actually see the, the laws being enforced, and they're enforced in a completely wacky way, completely weird. It doesn't actually fit exactly with the letter of either law. It's the spirit of both of them that Boaz fulfills. So let's just jump into it. So um, chapter 4, verse 1. I know you might have more questions, but I'm looking at my watch and anxious about time. So Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there. Now, why has he gone to the gate? Proverbs 31 or anywhere else that gates are mentioned. It's where the judges would sit, yes. It's where the elders would sit. Um, he shall not be put to shame when he sit, speaks with his enemies in the gate. It's a, gate, it's a place of public um, political conversation. It's like the town square and the town hall all rolled into one. So you've gone to the gate and sat down because he's got, he doesn't want to have this conversation in a bar somewhere. <laughs> like This needs to be recorded and witnessed, so he goes to the gate where he's likely to see people coming in and out of the city and where he's likely to find some other people who can witness it appropriately because, look, second half of verse 1, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, hey, turn aside. It says turn aside, friend. Um, Miller points out that it doesn't say friend. It's just like so-and-so. It's like, hey, you. (laughs) Almost, it's not contemptuous or dismissive, but it's, it's, in, it's indicative of something on the boundary between um, uh, friendship and, hey, I'm in charge around here. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's right. That, that's a subtle point if it is. But you see it right at the end of verse 1 because he says, turn aside, friend, and sit down. And he turned aside and he sat down. That's how Hebrew narrative characteristically indicates obedience. The Lord spoke to um, Elijah and said, rise, go. So he arose and he went. And it's like the repetition of the verbs indicate the recognition of God's authority. So he says, turn aside, friend, sit down. So he turned aside. So he sat down. So what's being communicated about Boaz, he's the kind of man who commands respect. So you can't, this is one of the intriguing things about shrewdness and protecting those whom you're responsible for. You can't just switch it on 
You can't just flip a switch and get gravitas by learning to lower your voice and getting a pair of boots that have two and a quarter inch heels. Like you, you actually need to already be the kind of man who does command respect from those who know him. And Boaz clearly is. It's a good, however old you are, now is a good time to start. Being the kind of man who is respectable so that he will be respected. Because if the guy just said, who are you? And walked off, Boaz is unable to help. So verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And you see again that the elders of the city just do what Boaz says. It's remarkable, isn't it? You see the kind of man that he is. Then he said to the redeemer, remember that um, proverb we looked at? Flip over the page again. Proverbs 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge. Look at what Boaz is concealing. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one else besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. What does he not mention? Ruth. Huh? Why not? Okay, we'll come to that in a second. But notice first, the, the, what's the law that he's calling attention to in this first statement when he says, no, yeah, the land bit right now. You think, where's our economist? He's gone, take a phone call. Uh, or pretend to be economists for a second. Put your, your um, high school geography hat on or whatever it is. There's been famine for quite a long time. So there is a high demand for food. Suddenly, chapter 1, the Lord has come to visit his people to give to them food, which means that rains have come. Land is useful again. High demand for food. Land has suddenly become valuable. What does that tell you about this portion of land that Naomi is selling? Would it be valuable or not? High price. price, Desirable. Everyone's getting back into the farming business. For the last few years, people have been living off reserves trying to find another way of making a living so they can buy food from some place where there isn't a famine. But now that the, um, the, the tailwinds have swung around in the direction of the farming industry, everyone's piling into farming. If you've got a couple of acres to sell, I'll buy it because it's suddenly become profitable. And so Boaz discloses this first. And the guy's reaction is, what? I'll redeem it. He knows about Naomi. He knows about the land. And he sees dollar signs. Right? Now, at this point, Mrs. Claghorn's question comes in. Right? Was there some uh, age restriction? Or, or what would happen in the case of a woman who is too old to bear children? 
we know that about um, Naomi. Because remember chapter 1? Yeah. When she speaks about how old she is. Even if I should have a child tonight and bear sons. But she's, um, she's, she says, I'm too old to have a husband. Um, and uh, uh, she's depicting herself as unable to have children back in chapter 1. So, from the point of view of the, the guy who's the redeemer, he sees the land. It's like, that's valuable. And he sees Naomi. Is he going to have to provide children for Naomi? No, because she, she probably can't bear children. So he buys the land. What happens to the inheritance from the land? stays within his family. Because, as far as he can tell, there is no prospect of a male heir to pass it on to. So he's like, this is fantastic. Like, there's this um, destitute widow, and I get to buy the land, which is valuable, big up my ranch, put, you know, knock, knock the fences down, buy a bigger combine harvester, make more money. And she's like, I don't know, 70 years old, she can't have children anymore. I don't even have to have oh, all the aggravation of sleepless nights and children and all that kind of... And then passing the inheritance on to them, don't have to do that. It's just dollar signs everywhere. So he, sa- everywhere. So he says, end of verse 4, I will redeem it. And then Boaz says something fascinating. He said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Can you see what's in, what's in his mind now? What Boaz has said to him is, if you want to be the Redeemer, like it's all or nothing. And if you're going to do it all, you have to marry Ruth. Which is completely not what the Old Testament law says. Ruth's husband, Martin, had not sold any land. Ruth was not an Israelite. Ruth had no claim on redemption at all. So what Boaz is insisting on here is what I want to call the spirit of the law. He's showing us how Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 ought to fit together in this circumstance, which isn't specifically anticipated in either of them. What's the spirit of the law? Of the spirit of the law is that you've got to provide kids for the, um, the, the widow of the man who's died. And the spirit of the law is you've got to pour yourself into his land, his inheritance, and bequeath it to kids who bear his name, not yours. That's the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is, well, if there's no, if there's no woman who's able to have children, great, you get the land. But Boaz insists that we read this law according to what it's designed to accomplish. And he frames it in such a way that the motives 
of this guy become completely transparent to everybody. The guy's blown his cover. Like, in, when it's just about the land, it's like, yes, please. I'll, I'll call my bank manager right now. And then Boaz later, in the next comment, reveals, well, there's a lady involved. A lady, you can have children. And it's at that point that the guy backs away. So how, I'm a question for you to think about for a second. If you're an onlooker, if you're one of the witnesses, what are you thinking now about Boaz? And what are you thinking about the other redeemer? What, what do you know about their motives, each of them? And what they're really looking for? Right, right, yeah. Right, very good. Right. Yeah, exactly. The, they, everyone can see if Boaz is willing to redeem this land and marry Ruth, he's clearly trying to do what is good to provide for the widow of Elimelech. Whereas everyone can see that the other guy basically is just, he might not be a bad man. He might just be a normal guy, but he's certainly not got Boaz's self-sacrifice. They can see that basically he was only interested while there was a healthy return on his capital investment. And you've got to see why that might matter because there's no, um, it's, it wouldn't be impossible that, let's suppose, um, Boaz didn't do it this way. Boaz just found some other way of persuading the guy to relinquish his claim. Maybe, maybe um, Boaz would be dishonest and just sort of not disclose that the reality of the situation at all. And this guy comes back later, changes his mind, relinquishes, and, and insists on being able to take up his claim on both the land and um, Ruth's hand in marriage. What you really want to do is to have some kind of public statement that establishes before all of the witnesses, all of the elders at the gate of the city, we, we all know what this guy was really after. We all heard him relinquish his claim on the land because he realized that there was a woman involved, a woman who could bear children. And what that means for Boaz is he's going to, invest his own money in buying this land and he's effectively going to give it to Elimelech. Elimelech's dead. But it's, it's going to be held on his behalf. Boaz is going to pour his energy, his labor, the labor of his workers, his time, more money for seed and everything else and fertilizer and everything else you do for land into it. And he's going to do it all so that somebody else Somebody else's line benefits. And he's going to marry Ruth with all of the expense that involves so that Naomi, the widow of Elimelech, can be provided for. And what's fascinating in the second half of the chapter is that Naomi kind of, we'll look at this next week, Naomi kind of comes into center stage a little bit. Um, the ladies, the women of the city say, a son has been born to Naomi. Because what's actually happened is that 
uh, Elimelech has died, and Boaz is like a substitute for him. And Ruth acts as a substitute for Naomi. Ruth bears children who, in one sense, legally are Naomi's offspring. They're, they're registered differently in Matthew's genealogy, in Matthew 1. But in Ruth 4, they're described as the, the, children, the, the child of Naomi. And so then, verses 7 to the end of that section, 7 to 10, you start to see the significance of this sandal thing, right? Because what happens is you get a reminder, verse 7, of the custom of that public humiliation connected with the Leverite marriage legislation. Verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now, just pause a second. I want you to... It's kind of... It's a difficult question, but you might be able to figure it out. Why would this particular action have had this significance? Do you think, why taking off your sandal? Any ideas? I might need to give you a clue. But you can't beg your pardon? You can't run away? Maybe. I don't know. I'd never thought of that. Yeah, Aaron. Maybe. It might be that. Your feet would get really dirty, so they'd be able to tell who you were. Maybe your feet would get dirty. But people's feet got dirty anyway because sandals, you know. Um, yeah, Evelyn. It might do, but that would be backwards. It might be, except that it's not holy ground, but it might be because dust, dust is associated in Scripture with death, and so your feet being in the dust, maybe. Yeah, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, very good, very good. Just, yeah, turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. I think the reason why has to do with the relinquishing of the inheritance in the land. The, it, Joshua chapter 1 verse 3, and you've got something similar in Deuteronomy chapter 1 as well, verse 36, but Joshua 1 will we'll do for now. Uh, the Lord says to, to Joshua, Moses is dead, verse 2. So you guys head over the Jordan into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So there's a connection between where you walk and the inheritance you receive from the Lord. And it, I think the way we're supposed to understand the sandal motif is that you're no longer walking in the way you would customarily walk. So you're no longer going to receive that inheritance. It's like disrupting the normal way that a person expresses their receipt of the inheritance from the Lord. You walk on it with sandals on, obviously. Well, no, you take off your sandal. 
You're the family of the unsandled. You're the family of the disinherited. Now, it's not that you would be legally disinherited, but it's that that's what the gesture alludes to. And it's particularly um, appropriate in this circumstance because what, what the, the Redeemer is being called upon to do is to act so as to preserve somebody else's inheritance down through their generations. You're refusing to do that? Well, you experience some shameful symbolic manifestation of your own disinheritance. Is that what you have in mind? I, I, I think that's what's going on here. So the, the gesture in Ruth 4 makes a bit of sense now. What this guy is doing is taking off his... I mean, I'm not doing it now. There's no need to act that one out. But taking off his sandal is a way of formally relinquishing his claim on this inheritance of land and on this family. Yeah, this is clerical. Is that why um, it was spelled with Yeah, there's those towns that won't respond with faith to the gospel. No, to shake the dust off your feet. I think it, it feels similar. I think that has more to do with the dust and death thing. So the um, uh, dust you are unto dust you shall return is how God announces the curse of death in Genesis 3. All the unclean animals, not all of them, almost all of them, I wish it was all because then it would be so neat, but, but almost all of them, either they're unclean because they've eaten stuff that's dead, like carrion, you can't eat birds that feed on carrion, like vultures. Or they're unclean because they don't have cloven hooves or they don't have jointed legs that hold their bodies above the ground. In each case, what the animal is doing is it's unclean because it's in contact with the dust of the ground through what it eats, through how it walks, through how it drags its body. Don't eat reptiles and snakes because they drag their body along the dust. Dust is like death. So I think that's what's going on in when Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet, that might be that here as well, that this man, it, the, the gesture reflects that really you're dying because you're not being willing to give yourself so that somebody else would live. Yeah. Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, I, so there's a couple of aspects to that question. Was it, uh, was it a situation where he would have felt shame? It's possible that he wouldn't, because what could have happened is that the gesture of, you know, take the sandal off his feet and spit in his face has become, this man takes his own sandal off. That's a different gesture. So obviously there's some kind of connection and rituals evolve like this and sometimes they lose their emotive force. They just re- remain as rituals. So we shake hands, right? Guys shake hands. But I'm not shaking hands with Loyal tonight because I want to show him I'm not carrying a sword. I'm not carrying a sword, but that's not in your mind or my mind. But it would have been in the medieval period. You shake hands with your right hand to show you're not bearing a sword in your right hand. So the gestures can become detached from their original emotional context. But they still, from our perspective, they have this sort of symbolic significance. Now, what did he know before? It sounds to me like he didn't know about... 
either didn't know about Ruth or he didn't realize that Boaz was going to push him on it and say, come on, if, if, if you're going to do this, you ought to do it right. And we all know what the spirit of the law really requires. The spirit of the law requires that you, uh, you buy this, but not for your own sake. You work on it, but not for your own income. You own it, but only so you can pass it on to somebody else, and your name will fade away and perish. That's what you ought to do. And I think that's quite likely. It seems to me unlikely that this guy had not heard about Ruth. It's more likely that Boaz just steps up and says, come on, you ought to do the, the godly thing here, which they all understood to be. Yeah. So, at the end, you get this really resonant, um, from verse 9, uh, declaration. And again, this is shrewdness. This is, let's just be clear what's happened here. For the avoidance of all doubt, verse 9. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Marlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife. Fascinating way of putting it. Not, oh, I've received as a gift, as though you don't have some right to her. Like, I've bought. Don't you dare try and take her away. You see the implication? He's trying to protect her by staking a formal legal claim. There's a way of saying I've bought her, which would be an appalling thing to say. But in this context, it, it sounds like the words of a man who wants to protect her from some other legal claim later. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. And they're the legal hearing more or less ends. You see what he's done? He has basically engineered a situation in which, firstly, he's got the girl whom he wanted to marry and to protect from uncertainty and possibly worse. He's also got the right to provide for Naomi and for offspring within her family whom he will provide through Ruth, who will step in for her, through the land which he's bought with his money so that he can bequeath it to somebody else's son. And he's going to spend the rest of his life pouring his assets not just into his own farm, his own business, but into hers. That's why he's a redeemer. He's giving himself, he's giving all that he has, all that he's got, to sustain somebody else's inheritance. And he does so, he secures it, by being shrewd, by being aware of the, the real possibility of evil and wanting to protect those he loves from it. Which leads me to one final comment, and we should um, pause unless you've got any final questions. We don't want to be using shrewdness in this way against those we love. Where? Where shrewdness goes wrong and becomes manipulativeness is when married couples, let's say, start being shrewd in relation to each other. How can I get what I want from him? Or children and parents, or 
siblings to each other. The, the proper use of biblical shrewdness is to, without making even negative assumptions about other people, it's being aware of the possibility of evil, whether from yourself or from somebody else, and seeking to protect those whom you love from it. Most of the time, we probably have to be shrewd in relation to the evil that we're capable of. And just occasionally, we need to be shrewd in relation to the evil that we need to protect those whom we love from. Okay. We are two minutes past, quarter past. Go on, Jonathan. One quick question. Yeah. Um, Right, he connected them and then he tweaked them both. There's nothing in there that would require you to marry the step, the, um, uh, the daughter-in-law of um, a, a dead man, only his wife. Yeah. So by the letter, as, as it stood, by the letter of the law, at best, that other kinsman was obligated to marry Naomi, but that really wasn't going to... Not a huge deal. She's not going to have children. So Amalek and Nimbus. Elimelech, yeah. <laughs> that guy, Ellie. That guy. His line was just going to go away. Basically. Right, right, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And so when, when he discovers about Ruth, then he says, well, then I can't do it. Cause, and notice what he says, I might impair my own inheritance. It's like, okay. So re- really you are just thinking about yourself then. Now, did so. Boaz go the extra mile in the land? Because uh, could he have just Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think, well, and also he perceives that the two are connected, and the best way to provide for Ruth and Naomi and their offspring, that in, in other words, Elimelech's family, is to get both, which requires more of an investment from him. I mean, let's face it: just marrying the beautiful girl, and he's already wealthy. He's got a bunch of people working for him. Marry the beautiful girl, leave your grumpy mother-in-law to look after herself. Come and move in; it'd be fine. But that's not what he wants to do. He he wants to preserve. To, to pres- what does he say? To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Yeah. Um, it's really beautiful that he, we don't know the kinsman, the first in line. We don't know his name. Yeah. And he says, "I can't do this because then the land won't be for me." Yeah. But then we get in Matthew, the genealogy. That's right. Elimelech isn't listed, but Boaz. But Boaz is. Yeah. Yes. So that their names continued on. Yeah, it's almost like their if you. That's right. It's almost like if anybody who wants to save his life will lose it, whereas anybody who uh, loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will, will gain it and keep it. I think that's why Boaz's name appears in Matthew 1. That's a, a living kind of enactment of the Lord's faithfulness. Here's a man who was willing to lose his name. And so the Lord preserved his name. Yeah. Yeah, Todd. That 
kind of has this authority to speak on the law as if he were to say something like, you've heard it said, but I'm here to tell you. Yeah, yeah, right. What I want to do next week is take the whole of chapter 4 and look at, kind of take, take a, a, an overview, and including Ruth's char- uh, Burroughs' character as a redeemer. Because, it, um, you know, you, you're, we're used to seeing, like Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, can we think of any examples of a guy who's a bit like Christ who's getting married well, right here? So what, what you'll see in him is exactly that, and that's one example yeah, you've heard it was said there's this thing about redemption. Let me tell you what it's really, what we ought to be doing with this. So it's very much like the Sermon on the Mount in that sense, what the law really should be interpreted to mean. I'm conscious we're over time. Um, go on, Preston, one more, then with a. It says to perpetuate the name of the dead. Yeah. Right, right. Living God. Yeah, and yeah. In a thousand years, the names that we've carried forward are really what is will be remembered in the grand scheme. Of yeah, things that's right. In reference, in, by virtue of the living and breathing beings that come after us. That's right. It's it's people and so often. Yeah. I think also, so he, he's perpetuating that. He's not perpetuating his name through the land. Mm-hmm. He's perpetuating the name of Elimelech through the genealogy. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we don't know where Elimelech's field is. Right. right yeah, but it's, it's the yeah, people. Yes, thank you. All right. Thank you all. Let's pray, and I'll let you go. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for this, uh, the twists and turns in this book of Ruth. And we ask you would help us to uh, reflect on the lesson of Boaz's shrewdness, his awareness of the evil in the world around him, May we, like him, be ready to lay down our lives in order to protect others from harm. Be willing to lay down our names in order to preserve the names of those who come after us. And in this way, we pray that in your economy, our names would be preserved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Pastor Shaw is not here. Uh, So unless he has sent via Zoom some kind of explanation of what to do, can we... Um, Mr. Robinson will know if we can lay the chairs out in the usual way for the oaks that'd be great anything else we need to know Daniel? right wonderful thank you all